All right, let's pray again. Scott prayed, but I, I need to pray too, so let's pray. <clears throat> Can't do too much of that. Got a few things we want to lift up this morning. Uh, first of all, before I ask some specific things about how we spend the next few minutes, I want to pray for another pastor in another church in our community. I want to pray for Terry Blankenship and for his marriage, for his family. Lord, I, uh, I pray that you would guard him, protect him, protect their marriage, protect their home from really the wiles of Satan, all the things that he does to poke at a guy and poke at a family and mess with people and the attempts to devour. I pray that you would guard Terry and his family from that, from those efforts. I pray that knowing that humans get tired and Satan doesn't get tired makes us all the more needy and dependent for your protection. And I pray for Terry and his family that you would protect them, that you would fuel them with worship and that it would find its purchase first at home. I pray that you would guard him from placing the ministry above, it, above a ministry to his wife and family. And just knowing how easy that is to do and how um, virtuous that can feel and how righteous it may seem that his wife and family get his best efforts and get his heart and get an undistracted often. And Lord, I pray that as a result of that, that you will fuel the ministry that he is leading and is part of at uh, FBC Greenville and that you will, be, you will multiply the work because he's entrusting the work to you. As I'm praying that for Terry and for his family, I'm praying the same thing for our family, my family, for the other elders here, for the other pastors in our community. Lord, we pray for a, um, a church, not just one single church, but a collection of Christ-centered churches in our community that are led by men that are worshiping and men that are intentional about how they're engaging their families. And... Uh, I'm thankful that when we fail, not if we fail, when we fail, that you make up a rich difference. And uh, I offer Terry and his family uh, to offer up First Baptist Church Greenville. Pray that the ministry there will be, entrust the ministry to you, and just pray that you will multiply ministry there. Lord, I pray that you would guard them as you would guard us and every other church in our community from a spirit of competition. But we offer them up right now praying for your glory in and through that church. We pray that they won't have room to tend to all the people that you are drawing to be part of that church family. Lord, we pray for your fame and your renown through the ministry there. Pray for salty, bright, aromatic worshipers that are equipped each week through the ministry of First Baptist Church, Greenville. Lord, also this morning, I want to pray for um, our crew that's headed off. This morning, we want to lift up our government just thinking about all that's going on in D.C. right now, Lord. I, I pray for your, first of all, for your will to be done, knowing that it's going to be done. I pray for perfect will. I pray for God-glorifying will. I pray that what unfolds there in these next few days and weeks will be something that will bring you glory. And honestly, Lord, what I pray more than the outcome there is I pray for God's people at Crosspoint, God's people in the United States, for a quiet confidence that you're not snoozing and just an aroma 
that says, you are enthroned, you are king of kings, lord of lords, that the human king is like water in your hand, that you guide them, that you control them. And if you allow some things to take place, if you allow some dramas to unfold, then it must be because you're up to a glory plan. And I pray that that would give us a quiet, a quiet peace. Uh, that we may speak, we may share, but that we have just a sense that you are squarely on your throne. And all of these kingdoms are just so temporary. And yours is not. And that we're part of your kingdom first and foremost. That we are a citizen of a heavenly kingdom right now. I pray that you would use that quiet peace in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our relationships, in our communities to be, um, to make it attractive to trust you. That that would be a sweet aroma. It would be attractive to people that you may be drawing. That they would see a people that are trusting something bigger than what we see. Thankful that we can do that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Turn to Psalm 27. <clears throat> As you're turning there, I want to share with you what we're doing. Uh, this last week was a little bit of a step away from a series of sermons, although it fits pretty nicely in it. It wasn't by design. A series of sermons that we're calling the Awe Series. I was on sabbatical for a couple of months this summer, and... Um, was charged with rest and um, study. And during that period of a couple of months, I realized, I, was, I read a book by uh, Paul Tripp that was really helpful. He had a section in there that was dealing with how common it is in ministry, it's not, I don't think it's just ministry, to lose your awe, that you can find yourself sort of going through the motions, that this constant contact with divine things can lead to sort of a familiarity where it's just like, oh, okay, yeah. The cross, forgiveness, holiness, mm, good stuff. And you could sort of be in a place where you say the right things, but where it may not invade life's um, den moments, where you're talking with your wife about something that seems massive, where it may not invade a work situation that just seems like the sky is truly falling. So something that I realized I needed is something that um, I'm having the privilege of guiding us through these last couple of weeks and these next few weeks in a series of sermons in hopes of renewing awe. Something I realized in studying is that doesn't mean you don't love Jesus. It doesn't mean that you're not engaging him. It doesn't mean you don't have faith. If your awe is weak, it means that it decays and it needs to be renewed. It needs to be stirred up by way of reminder. It's like manna. He gives you enough for today, and then you go get some more the next day. We're not machines that are fixed. I like the thought of that because I like really compartmental fixed things, but we're not machines that are fixed. We're like gardens that need to be tended to. And if we're not tended to regularly, if we're not renewed, then we decay. Weeds can grow, and things can become familiar and common. So these last few weeks, we've been considering a couple of things about God. The very greatness of God was the first thing we considered in this series, the very greatness of God. And then week before last, we considered his infinite power. 
And this morning, we're going to consider his great beauty, God's great beauty. So I'll read our psalm. It's going to be home base for us. So I'm going to read it in its entirety, and then we're going to come back over the course of the morning and sort of unpack some uh, details there that are in this psalm. And they're going to be in, this psalm is going to be in some ways an escort to a few other places we're going to look this morning. It's the psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted, lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Some questions that we're going to ask and answer this morning are three. First of all, what is David seeking after? The second question is going to imply that there's some, something being answered there. It's going to unfortunately give the answer to the first question, but we are going to explore the first question. The second question is, what is the beauty of the Lord? And the third question is, in what context is it best beheld? It's a weird word, but it's one I like. It's a good word. When we're going to talk about the beauty of the Lord. We're going to use an uncommon word. In what context is it best beheld? What was David seeking after? What is the beauty of the Lord? And in what context is it best beheld? We're focusing in primarily on verse 4. We're going to engage the entire psalm, but verse 4 is really our escort to what we're considering this morning. It says, David here says, One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Some things that stand out to me, first of all, is the fact that there's only one thing that this guy's after. He's seeking after one thing. When you really think about all that's going on in the psalm, all that we're going to unpack over the next few minutes, you'll see this, to consider that he's really only looking after one thing. It must be pretty important. 
one thing I'm seeking after. All the stuff that's going on, all the moving parts in this psalm, all the things that are coming after David, and he's looking for just one thing. He's asking of God just one thing, and that one thing he is actively seeking after. He wants to perpetually dwell in the house of the Lord. And he, in order to gaze upon his beauty and to inquire in his presence, to meditate is what that word inquire means. He is after something, and it seems pretty important to him. And since I'm going to say that David is the go-to guy when it comes to awe, I want to know what he's after. If I want my awe to be renewed, and I want my awe to be extreme, if I want to be awestruck in worship, David's a great guy to go to, and the Psalms is a nice place to camp. This morning, we're going to consider exactly what David is after. Some ways, though, we're going to spend the next few minutes considering what David isn't after. We're going to do a little survey in the Bible on beauty. I'm going to explain why David is not after this necessarily, but I do want, if we're talking about the beauty of God, the beauty of the Lord, I do want us to consider some things having to do with beauty. Because in some ways, in seeing what beauty isn't, we will better be able to apprehend what beauty is. So just sit back and relax for a few minutes. I'm going to do a little survey for you. Beauty is in our Bibles cover to cover. And when I say cover to cover, I'm not being um, um, figurative. It really is in our Bible from cover to cover. The first picture that I see of beauty, I can imagine how creation week was, was things are being spoken into existence, that that was pretty awesome. But in chapter 2, you don't need to turn that Some of you that really like to turn, like I'm turning there. You can, obviously, but I'm there, and my pages are marked, so I'm going to be way faster than you are. I'm cheating. I'm doing a survey. I want to, I think of your listening in terms of currency, and I don't want to spend your currency right now because I want to sort of save some of that for later. But I do want you to listen and relax over the next few minutes. Take in this survey. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, it says, The Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right off the bat, in the first few pages of the story, we see something that is pleasant to the sight. God created the garden. We can imagine how beautiful the garden must have been. And he goes out of his way to say, these trees are especially beautiful. This garden must have been beautiful beautiful. The other end of the the spectrum in Revelation chapter 21, listen to these passages that have to do with this holy city. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now what husband hasn't looked down the aisle and marveled at the beauty that was waiting for him or that he's waiting for at the end of the aisle? Beauty. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Beauty is in our Bible, cover to cover. From the first garden to the ultimate garden, 
the Garden of the New Jerusalem. Beauty seems to be very important. Some other places it shows up, if you've been coming and and engaging our study on Wednesday nights, you know that we've spent some time considering the tabernacle and how that was built, and Bezalel and Oholiab, these craftsmen that were involved in really making some beautiful, beautiful furniture and beautiful fixtures for the tabernacle. The tabernacle must have been very beautiful. God gave specific instructions, chapters long, on how beautiful this structure was to be. That's beauty that comes from the Lord. That's a good thing. Beautiful garden. If you've studied the tabernacle and temple, you know that in some ways the tabernacle and the, and the temple are little miniature micro gardens, micro Edens where God dwells. So it's very appropriate that they were beautiful. The temple also gets whole chapters dedicated to how beautiful the temple was going to be. A dude named Huramabi is called in from the king of Tyre. You remember Huramabi, the guy that would have won Project Runway if he were on, if he were living now? He was so skilled in so many different things, he would have just taken it hands down. This temple must have been amazing. It must have been quite beautiful. Psalm 96, 6 says this, Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. The sanctuary that they would have known in Psalm 96 would have been the tabernacle and the temple. Beauty's part of the story. Beauty that's pleasing to the eye. Things that are pleasant to sight are part of the story. Psalm chapter 50, Psalm number 50, verse 2 says this about Jerusalem. Jerusalem is often referred to as Zion. Jerusalem being considered a beautiful city. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Beauty's part of the story. And not just in things that have been uh, built, not just in these structures, not just in a city, but also in creation itself. Many of you, I think, were here probably since been years ago at this point where we had a sermon that was dedicated to Psalm 19. It may have been more than one sermon, Psalm 19. It's one of my favorites. Some of the most special times I've ever had in my family were sitting next to Yellowstone Lake, watching the waves crash in. From Yellowstone Lake's a good-sized lake, so the waves all the time, crashing in on the shore of this lake as we're reading Psalm 19, thinking about how beautiful this setting is. And listen to this psalm. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. Like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. That section in Psalm 19, the rest of it's about the law of the Lord, but that section is about general revelation of God's fingerprints all over creation, whether it's a mountain range or a sunset. For those of you that were up on Tuesday morning early, I went to swim with Jerry Morris at the Y, and the sky, who stepped outside, Jerry could hardly get in the pool. Like, Jerry, come swim. Because he said, I've never seen it like this. It's a sunrise, I call it a sunset, a sunrise that encompassed the entire sky. Like it wasn't just on one side. It encompassed the entire sky. It points toward God. That beauty should be beheld. That is beauty that comes from the Lord. And those things, whether it's the redness of a cardinal 
It's the most beautiful red you've ever seen. Or the most unique red of... I got to go fishing with Christy and the kids this summer in saltwater. Seeing a red snapper just fly across the bow of the ship on a line, it's the most beautiful red nearly I've ever seen. I've never seen a red like that. It points toward his handiwork. His fingerprints are all over it. That should be beheld, whether it's a landscape or rainbow. Those should strike awe in God's people. This summer, we had the chance to go to Italy as a family. And in Florence, there are um, lots of museums in Italy. And Florence has a few of them. And they house some famous statues like Michelangelo's David. Some of you may have seen Michelangelo's David before. It's a statue of David after he whipped Goliath. I want a little miniature version of it, and I almost bought a little miniature version of it for my office, but homeboy's totally naked, and I just could not bring myself to putting that in my office. I wouldn't, I didn't have a problem with it, but Christy said, somebody's going to have a problem with that. Some dude that doesn't know who Michelangelo is, or David, I mean, hopefully he knows who David is, but that statue is going to be like, man, he's got a naked statue in his office. That statue is amazing, though. The thing is huge. And when you stand beneath it and you're taking in the complexity, the, the, the veins, you can see the veins in his legs and his feet. And how a guy that's 26 years old, that's how old Michelangelo was, could break that out of a big chunk of granite, big chunk of marble, excuse me, ought to leave everybody. I mean, you can't talk in there. Or maybe you can, nobody does. I can't remember if you can talk in there, but if if you're talking, it's like you're whispering because you're awestruck that anybody could create that. But that's just one little old statue. I mean, it's pretty awesome, but it points me not to how amazing the statue is, but how amazing Michelangelo must have been, his mind to be 26 years old and only a few years later to be painting the Sistine Chapel. It should point us to the author It should point us to the sculptor. It should point us to the one behind the creation, behind the masterpiece. And that's what creation does. The beauty of a sunrise or the redness of a cardinal should point us to the beauty that God creates. Ecclesiastes 3 says this, He has made everything beautiful in His time. God is the source of anything beautiful that you've ever seen or will ever see. He gets the glory for it. Now, if you stayed in Psalm 27, you're good. If you didn't, if you are obstinate and needed to go look at other Psalms or other passages, Emily Higgins, where is she? She's not obstinate. Funny. Psalm 27, go back there. There she is. Yeah, she's right in front. I had everybody stand last week. If I've ever embarrassed you in a sermon, I could do that again. She could stand up again right now. I want you to go back to Psalm 27 because what, what I want to show you here in Psalm 27 right now, and what we're going to see in these next few minutes, is that what David is seeking, that one thing that he's after, is not all the stuff I just talked about. It's not all the stuff I just talked about. The one thing he's after 
isn't something pleasing to the eyes. It's not a beautiful tree. It's not a beautiful fixture. For in this case, in this moment, in Psalm 27, the temple hasn't even been built. If you think, well, Huramabi, the guy that would have won Project Runway, he hadn't done his work yet, and this temple has not been built, so he wouldn't be awestruck with the beauty of the temple. And funny enough, he wouldn't be awestruck with the beauty of the tabernacle either, either, because there was no tabernacle at this point. All there was was a tent, a tent for the Ark of the Covenant. That's it. And David is not seeking one thing in all this mess that's going on in my life. I want one thing. I want to go into that tent, and I want to look at that ark all day long. Mm. Look at there. That's not what David is up to. That's not what David is after. He's not after aesthetic beauty. Though aesthetic beauty comes from the Lord, that's not what he's after. There's some clues to what he's after later on in the psalm. In verse 8, it says he wants to see his face. We know that's not talking about some physical face of God. And then later on in verse 13, it's saying he wants to see his goodness. I want to behold his beauty all the days of my life. And later on, he gives some hints of what that beauty is when he's talking about his face and his goodness. What I want to show you in these next few minutes is it is a contrary beauty that he's after. You could even call it an ironic beauty that he's after. Now I do want you to turn to Mark chapter 14. We're going to go to the Gospels for a moment and just take a couple of little looks here in the Gospels and see what Jesus says is beautiful. If we can see what Jesus says is beautiful, then we can get get some sense about what really is beautiful and the sort of beauty that maybe David was after. We're going to come back to Psalm 27, and I'm going to show you what David is really looking for in these next few minutes and more as we get back in Psalm 27. Let's see what Jesus says is beautiful. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 3. Jesus would be a great go-to guy, go-to God to find out what real beauty is. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the world, it's happened here a number of times over the course of the life of this church, What she has done will be told in memory of her. It's happening right now, fulfillment of that prophecy. Jesus says what this woman has done here, now that is beautiful. It's not aesthetic beauty. What she was doing there was not pleasing to the sight like the trees in the garden. In fact, given the reaction of those that were eyewitnesses to it, you could say not only was it not pleasing to the sight, we could say it's unsightly. 
and even unseemly. You see their reaction. You see how they consider the expense. And Jesus says, that, now that is beautiful. Some things that we can know that are true about this is that what's taking place here that Jesus says is beautiful is this is a very expensive sacrifice. Other passages, the parallel, there are three gospels that share this same story and share some different details about it. What we know about this account is that she spent, in a matter of moments, a year's wage worth of perfume. Just let that hit you for a moment. Insert your year's wage into that story. And just think about that for a moment. Insert that number in there, whatever that number might be, and realize how expensive that sacrifice really was. Take it in. A year's wage spent in just a few minutes and spent in a setting and in a way that was surprising and unlikely. Spent in a setting and in a way that's surprising and unlikely. Administered in a way and by a person that you wouldn't expect. And Jesus says, now this is beauty. You want to know what's beautiful? Now this is beauty. Contrary, beauty. Let's see what else Jesus has to say about beauty. Turn to Matthew 23. In this case, we're going to see what Jesus says isn't beautiful. Matthew 23. Beginning in verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the outside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may be clean. Excuse me, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean." Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Mary's unseemly and even unsightly act That is what Jesus says is beautiful. And this right here, this incongruence between the outside and the inside is what Jesus says effectively is ugly. This is not beautiful. Being beautiful on the outside, yet dead on the inside. In fact, we know from this passage, not only dead, but greedy and self-indulgent on the inside. That's not beautiful. What we can take away from that is that outward beauty may in fact be a farce. The nation of Israel constantly had problems with trusting in their own beauty. The message in Ezekiel, in a few different passages, Ezekiel 16 and Ezekiel 28, is the message of pride in your beauty is what's going to land you in Babylon. Trusting in your beauty rather than the source of beauty is what's going to land you in exile. 
And that's exactly what the Pharisees continued to do. Jesus says what Mary did, that unsightly, unseemly thing, expensive thing in an unlikely setting, now that was beautiful. But you looking like a shiny penny on the outside, but being self-indulgent and greedy and proud on the inside is not. Jesus says something that's beautiful is what Mary did. I couldn't help but think about Isaiah 53. This is in the section in Isaiah that's talking about the restoration into Israel. The people are in exile at this point, and we're moving in the direction where he's going to give them the details that they need and the the truth that they need where they're restored back to the land. And in Isaiah 53, he's pointing toward a Savior that's going to come eventually, speaking of the Savior that we all know. And listen what's true about our Savior. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. No beauty. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. I hope the irony there isn't lost on you, that the author of beauty ordained it, that when the sun shows up, that he's not beautiful. He's not aesthetically beautiful. He's not pleasing to the sight like the trees in the garden. Because the problem with Israel is they're trusting in their beauty. The problem with Israel is they're too concerned about the outside and not the inside. I have to ask the question, God, why wouldn't you make him the most beautiful creature this world has ever known? You could have. Why wouldn't you make him the most beautiful creature this world has ever known, but by design, he makes him homely? common and unattractive. So it makes me ask the question again, what exactly then is David after? Go back to Psalm 27. We're going to find out. What exactly is David after? This one thing that this expert on awe is after. In Psalm 27, There's a clue when you begin to pan out from verse 4. Unless you're just some amazing, you got some amazing handle on Bible study and just in one reading you can take in all the details, you probably miss the context here. In verse 4, he's saying, One thing I've asked of the Lord, that I can go into the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. But when you pan out around that verse, you realize the context for David and what he's saying here is difficulty. In verses 1 and 2, and then later in the passage throughout, there's this potential of fear, this context of fear. In verse 2, he's dealing with evildoers, adversaries, and foes. In verse 3, there's an army and a war coming against him. In verse 6, he's dealing with enemies. In verse 7, he's crying. In verse 10, he's forsaken by his own father and mother. In verse 12, he's facing false witnesses and violence. And it's in this context where he's looking for something lovely and great and in this dark trouble that beauty is best beheld. And now I'm going to define beauty for you. 
in light of this context, in light of what Jesus says is beautiful, here's a different definition of beauty for you. Something great and lovely that happens in a situation or setting where it's unexpected. Something great or lovely that happens in a situation or setting where it's unexpected. That's beauty. That's what David was looking for. And that's what we should be looking for as well. Turn to Acts 3. I want to show you a beautiful story. Acts 3. Something that's true about our Gospels that will help you in your study of the Gospels and of Acts, because that the, Acts, the book of Acts was written by one of our Gospel writers, Luke, is they are up to something in the Gospels. They are making an argument. They're not just presenting facts. You stop reading your Gospels as just, you know, history, and start reading and try and get at what point are you making here then you're really well on your way to really making some sense of the Gospels and really having some pretty awesome things that you have to reckon with. Well, Luke here in chapter 3 is not just providing some details, like a good doctor, good history guy. He's showing us something here, and it's brought out in a couple words that are repeated. In chapter 3, he tells us something that happens at the beautiful gate. There's only one mention of this word beautiful in our New Testaments, and it's right here twice in this little section. And this gospel writer, Luke, that's also writing the book of Acts, is going to show us something really, really beautiful that's going to take place at the beautiful gate. Let me give you a little context. The beautiful gate was one of the entrances into the temple. It wasn't immediately right up against the temple, but it was in like an outer court. And we don't know exactly which entrance it was, but it must have been like the name, beautiful. That's the setting for this beautiful story. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that's called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Something I want you to see about this guy. First of all, I want you to see that he is lame from birth, from birth. I was talking with Bill Ruth just last night. He and I were talking about poverty. You know, poverty, in, poverty in our context is different from poverty in their context. Sometimes poverty in our context, where somebody that's knocking on our door as a church and saying, hey, I need some help with rent, is because they sold their food stamps to buy crack. Now, that's not true in every case, and we don't want to be generalized. But sometimes, oftentimes in our context, people are poor because they've just been just plain stupid. And they've been caught up in sin that's just devoured their lives. Poverty here is different. Poverty in this context, if you were lame in any way, if you were blind, if you had some sort of physical issue that kept you from working, you would have been a poor person. If you were a widow, you would have been a poor person. And this person right here, this man that's laying at the beautiful gate since birth, has laid there since birth, asking alms. Asking for money, that's his job. 
Likely his family realizing this guy is not going to provide anything for the family. All we can do is go park his behind at the beautiful gate and he can ask for money all day long and maybe he'll provide enough money where we can continue to feed him. Not contributing in any other way. It's all he can do. So they park him at the beautiful gate to beg. They carry him there. Laying at the temple gate called beautiful. It must have been ironic. Think about it. The temple gate beautiful where you spend your life lame, begging for money. How many beautiful people must he have seen come and go every day? How many hours he must have laid there asking for money underneath the entrance, the most beautiful entrance into the temple courts? I hope the irony is not lost on you. It says he's lame, but it doesn't mean he couldn't think. So how many hours and years as he's begging must he have lain at the beautiful gate wondering? And my life's not beautiful. There's nothing beautiful about my situation. Beautiful people coming and going into the beautiful temple. Here I lay by the beautiful gate, lame and poor. I wonder how many people must have thought to themselves, I wish I could enjoy the beauty of this gate and its entrance into this beautiful temple. They call it Herod's Temple. If it were not for all these dirty, unsightly beggars. Man, I hope the irony of the setting is not lost on you. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. He sees these couple of dudes going into the temple, not knowing who they were or who they represented, and he asks of them the same thing he asks of everyone else. Can I have some money? How many other requests must he have made over the years? I wonder how many requests he made over the course of a day. How many people walked right by him and probably thought to themselves, go get a job. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand. He raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. These two were different than every other person he had had ever sought for alms. For who they represented and what they had to give him was something totally different. It was really something lovely and great and unexpected from two dudes that didn't have a plug nickel between them. They had a healing to give this man this day that forever changed his life. In verse 8, leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened him. One of the things that I enjoy is the order of what unfolds here in verse 8. He leaps before he stands. This has a, I don't know why this has, this poor dude has something. If my, 
If my two, my middle and my oldest, who aren't here this morning, and I, I can say this without embarrassing them, if they lived in this context, they would have been asking for alms. But this day, something beautiful happened. Man, homeboy leaps before he stands. Can you imagine spending your whole life? Who knows how old he was? We don't know how old he was. Can you imagine spending your whole life lame, laying under the beautiful gate, and then someone says, stand up, and you feel your legs strengthen? You leap into the air before you even stand. He leaps. He stands. He walks. And then he does the most appropriate thing he could possibly do at that moment. He enters the temple. And he entered the temple for the first time. You think they let lame, blind people, anybody with any sort of abnormality in the temple courts? Absolutely not. This guy enters the temple for the first time. Something beautiful happened here this day. A man that laid under the beautiful gate his whole life, lame, leaps. He stands. He walks. He enters God's presence in the temple. Afterwards, says he walked some more. Says he leapt some more. <laughs> Wouldn't you? And then it says he praised God. He leaps. He stands. He walks. He enters the temple. He walks some more. He leaps. He praises God. And it says here, a passage tells us that all his worship begat more worship. As others beheld that something beautiful happened at the beautiful gate this day. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. They were filled with the very thing that I'm preaching about these last few weeks. Awe. They were filled with awe because they saw something truly beautiful that day. They saw something great and lovely that happens in a situation or setting where it's unexpected. And they said, that's beautiful. That's what David was after in Psalm 27. As he's surrounded by evildoers, adversaries, foes, an army, war, enemies, false witnesses. He's after the face and the goodness of God in that context. In an unlikely setting. Man, something great or lovely that happens in a situation or setting where it's unexpected. That's our story. We're going to close and get ready for the supper in Isaiah. I want you to turn there because I want you to see this. This is going to close the sermon and prepare us for the supper in Isaiah 61. If you remember how we broke the book of Isaiah down last time, this is in the section dealing with restoration to the land. Isaiah is broken down into three parts. This section has to do with restoration into the land. Listen to what takes place in Isaiah 61. What you're going to hear right here is beauty. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, 
to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. You see what he's talking about here in the restoration to the land? This has application for those exiles who would be restored to the land directly for them, but ultimately this is consummated in what Christ has done for us. For ultimately, we are poor, we are brokenhearted, we are captives, we are bound, we mourn, we have ashes on our head. If you are acquainted with your sin, if you spent some time with your word, you realize you're crossways with your creator. Because of your sin, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. We're wearing ashes on our head. We are mourning. We are faint in spirit. Yet in place of those, he gives us good news. He binds us up. He gives us liberty. He opens the prison. He comforts us. He gives us a beautiful headdress. That beautiful headdress there is translated in some ways crown but it's speaking specifically of the headdress that the priest wore. He's given us those beautiful priestly garments. He's given us gladness instead of mourning and praise instead of a faint spirit. It's deliverance in a tough setting. They're still exiles at this point. They're moving home. He's telling them what they're getting. Contrary beauty. Like the lame guy since birth, parking it at the beautiful gate. A beautiful irony. The most beautiful thing that this world has ever known was the Son of God showing up and taking on flesh and living a sinless life to die in our place for we too were lame since birth and to pay a price we couldn't pay and to defeat what we couldn't defeat, and then on top of all of that, to raise us up and to seat us with the victor and put a beautiful headdress on our head. Amen? Man. For in Christ, we leap, we stand, we walk, we enter the presence of God, we walk some more, we leap, and we praise God. Let me prepare you for something. He may not remove the evildoers for you. I shared a little bit, being a little bit vulnerable. I can do that without the kids here. Two of our three, some of you know, a lot of you know, if you've been here for some period of time, it's how, I, how we experience faith as the McGraws. Two of our three are visually impaired. I don't know how many years ago it was at this point. Believing James, if any of you is sick, call for the elders. Called for the elders. In our den, prayed for for Evan and Luke, Brad, Scott, Steve Roberts. Laid hands on my kids. And I remember Luke, after we said amen, Luke looking up looking around the room and running upstairs because nothing changed. Nothing changed. He may not take away your war. He may not take away your lameness. 
He may not take away the evildoers. He may not take away your foes. He may not take away your army, your enemies, your false witnesses. He may not take away whatever physical thing you may be dealing with. He may, and that's why I called for the elders, and I hope you do too when you're sick. But he may not. And in those cases when he does, all he's doing is showing us these little reminders of what he's already done for us in Christ. And in those cases when he doesn't, he's causing us to appreciate all the more what he's done for us in Christ because we have a problem that's far worse than some physical blindness, far worse than some foe or adversary or army or war, something far worse than a lifetime even of lameness. And that's being enslaved to sin and death with no hope, no hope to be reconciled with our Creator. But that's what Christ did for us. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful story when something great and lovely happens in a situation or setting when it's unexpected. When you are fueled by that, I'm going to tell you right now, you will be fueled by awe. Gracious sakes alive. People say, what you got? Man, that's all I got, but that's everything. That's everything. He might give you a job. He might fix your eyes. He might make you well, but he might not. But he's already ultimately made us all well. Gracious sakes alive. That's, that's enough. Is that enough? That's enough. Man, that's all we need. That's beautiful. Gracious, I'll take that. That's preparation for the Lord's Supper. What we do each week when we take that supper is we intentionally are reminded of what Christ has done for us, what God did for us in Christ. We are weekly reminded of the victory that we already have in Christ, that our ashes, that's what they did when you were repenting or mourning, you're dealing, you're dust cloth and ashes. Ugh. That's replaced with a beautiful headdress, not because of anything you did, but because of what our victor did on the cross in an empty tomb. We are stirred up by way of reminder every single week. So as you take the supper right now, I urge you, I beg you, take it in faith, trusting completely on his righteousness. Take it in faith, enjoying the beauty of the story, enjoying that his body and blood, his body was broken for you and his blood was shed for you. Like Brad said last week, we are granted something that we didn't earn because he paid for something in our place. That's, that's all we got, but that's everything. Let's enjoy the supper together.